Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, a sculpture by Brian R. Owens memorializes the foot soldiers of the Civil Rights Movement in St. Augustine. I was there with those people. They lost their jobs, they had to leave town, and uh, they had babies to feed, and all the attention was going for the people of name and those people left and we were here by ourselves to struggle and try to carry on. Historian Jack Davis takes a comprehensive look at the life and work of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. We have all these natural beauties and resources and our great problem is to keep them as they are. We'll talk with a former Florida rodeo clown that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the summer of 1964, the living was definitely not easy in St. Augustine, particularly for the city's African-American residents. After years of lunch counter demonstrations, picketing, and attempts to integrate whites-only beaches, civil rights activities in St. Augustine reached a climax as the world watched. Attention focused on the demonstrations in St. Augustine has been credited with helping get the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed. A sculpture remembering the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement in St. Augustine has been placed in the downtown plaza right next to the slave market where people of African descent were bought and sold as property. Barbara Vickers is president of the St. Augustine Foot Soldiers Memorial Project and was one of the foot soldiers herself. Yes, I'm history. I was a part of it. Yes, we used to march down uh, from the different churches and we had night marches and the night that they beat it, Andy Young on the corner there. I was there that night um, down under the bushes, uh, had a hedge down there, and we marched around. We couldn't come in the plaza because they had rocks ready for us, so we had to march around the plaza, and the bricks came here and there, and they just went zoop by here, and zoop, and a lot of people got hurt that night, but I didn't get hit. Martin Luther King Jr. and members of his Southern Christian Leadership Conference called St. Augustine the most violent city in America. 
The night of greatest violence came on June 25, 1964, as peaceful African-American demonstrators in the same plaza where their memorial now stands were attacked with bricks and stones. Barbara Vickers says that she and her fellow demonstrators were constant targets of police intimidation. After the meetings, we would have to drive back to our homes, and I was stopped many a times going home, and uh, they wanted to know if I had weapons. And uh, they searched my car, and they found the crank, the car crank for the tire. And the police said I had a weapon. They said I could arrest you for this. But however, they were doing all this to intimidate us and try to discourage us from going to the meetings. But nothing kept me from going to the meetings. I was to every meeting they had. During the summer of 1964, the civil rights movement in St. Augustine became particularly organized with the help of Martin Luther King and other national leaders. But the local foot soldiers were still at the heart of the struggle. Well, actually, um, I was slow getting into the movement. Uh, Dr. Haling, he lived across the street from me. And he was recruiting people for different things, and I was hesitating because I worked in the salon during the week. But when Dr. King came, and he was at uh, First Baptist, and uh, Dr. Halen told him he was short of people in the kneelings at the churches. And he looked at me, and he said, young lady, will you go? And there was something about his eyes, and it was just electrifying to me. And before I knew it, I said, yes. And uh, that started me to go into the kneelings on Sundays. And um, Dr. Halen, we had to patrol his house, whether the boys did, rather, to protect them because the clans would come through every night. We slept without lights and whatever because they would shoot the lights out. And um, so that's how I got involved, and I was there until the end. Martin Luther King and his followers were known for their strategy of implementing social change through nonviolence, even in the face of police harassment and aggression. St. Augustine was the only place in Florida where Reverend King was arrested. A system had to be developed to provide help for peaceful demonstrators who were arrested in St. Augustine. Well, what happened when the kids were arrested, we were first a part of the NAACP. And um, they were slow. They didn't have the money to get the kids out. So when Dr. King came, he was SCLC. So that's when we switched over, and they managed to get money from somewhere to get the kids out. Yeah, Hank Thomas came. He was originally from here, and he went on to be one of the 1961 uh, Freedom Riders. And um, he was very active and whatnot. So when he came down with college students and they put him in jail, um, they said that um, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. sent money to get him out of jail. So there were different people that would send money to help. Concerns about racial injustices came to a head in the summer of 1964 when African-American residents of St. Augustine were excluded from the plans to celebrate the city's 400th anniversary the following year. Sculptor Brian R. Owens is proud that his work commemorating the participants in St. Augustine's Civil Rights Movement will be viewed by people celebrating the city's 450th anniversary in 2015. I hope that a few years from now when St. Augustine celebrates its 450th birthday that passersby remember the name of the sculpture and just go home and Google it and find out more about it. It's not a depressing subject. It's an enlightening subject. Uh, the Civil Rights Movement... It confirmed that we have what it takes to survive the childhood of our species, and 
that we, that we have the tools at our disposal that we need to solve our problems. To many young people today, the civil rights movement of the 1960s seems as much a part of the distant past as the American Revolution. Brian Owens hopes that his sculpture will help people of all ages and backgrounds connect with the stories of the people who participated in this struggle. Yeah, the civil rights movement was a very real thing. Uh, real people paid for the rights that we now enjoy. They paid for it with their bodies. They paid for it with their teeth, with their limbs. And uh, we do ourselves a favor when we come back and just for a moment reflect without feeling sorry for ourselves about remembering the sacrifice that people made just so, so that we could sit here and have this conversation. It's easy enough to say that. I think that each of us has to explore it on our own. Hopefully this sculpture will be, will be part of that exploration, uh, not just for us, but for the, the people who are enjoying this upcoming birthday celebration and everyone after that. The sculpture will be here for several thousand years, and, and it will exist until it is intentionally destroyed. Hopefully we'll reach a lot of those people. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was being filibustered in Congress as demonstrations were at their peak in St. Augustine. The images of segregation and violence coming out of St. Augustine are credited with helping to end the stalemate and get the legislation passed. Brian Owens became aware of St. Augustine's pivotal role in the civil rights movement as he began work on his memorial sculpture. Well, I prided myself at the time. Uh, I thought that I was uh, fairly well informed on the subject of civil rights. That turned out not to be the case. And it was as if someone had rolled away some giant stone and revealed a path to some new fountainhead of knowledge, and I've been totally absorbed in it ever since. I knew nothing about it. And uh, as I learned more, I went back to my old civil rights books and found St. Augustine as a mere footnote in history when so much had happened here. It was a revelation to me. The bronze sculpture that Brian Owens has created in honor of the St. Augustine foot soldiers of the Civil Rights Movement has been placed next to the slave market in the city's downtown plaza. It's 675 pounds of bronze on top of 7,500 pounds of stone sitting on, uh, I don't know how much, concrete, concrete that's in the ground to keep it from, from settling. It takes a lot of effort to pull something like that off, uh, more than can be accomplished in a short period of time by one artist. So there were a number of people, myself naturally, but also the foundry that uh, cast the work and helped me assemble it, the people who brought it here, and the specialists who installed it into the ground. Uh, it's, a, it's a large undertaking uh, in view of the fact that you're trying to get it done fairly quickly. A 30-foot-tall statue of Martin Luther King Jr. is open to the public in Washington, D.C. King was present at the height of the civil rights struggle in St. Augustine, but the sculpture by Brian Owens honors the everyday people who participated in the effort, the foot soldiers. His memorial includes four bronze busts in front of a relief sculpture. Each of the people depicted represents many others who fought for equality in St. Augustine. The figures represent uh, a rough demographic of who was participating in uh, protests at that time. You have a, a relatively young white college student, a black male in his 30s, a woman, a black woman in her 60s, and then a black female uh, about age 16. And there were a lot of teenagers that were involved 
particularly in St. Augustine and didn't demonstrating here. And of course, uh, whites came in from elsewhere. Uh, there were whites here also that demonstrated. The whites also brought themselves here by bus to join in. So we, you know, it, we had to we had to tip our hat as best we could uh, to represent the people who uh, who participated in this. On the day that the Senate voted on the 1964 Civil Rights Act, a photograph appeared on the front page of newspapers across the country showing civil rights demonstrators attempting to integrate the pool at St. Augustine's Monson Motor Lodge. And the owner of the motel went nuts, basically, or the manager went nuts, came out and threw some sort of acid into the water. Uh, an acid that's used to clean or maintain hotel premises or the pool itself. But he threw a lot of it in the pool. That's a terrifying uh, thought to hold in your mind, but someone actually managed to take a photograph of it. And it was that photograph, along with others, that managed to make, the, make their way out of the city and be seen by people outside of St. Augustine. Barbara Vickers is proud that the Monson Motor Lodge incident and other efforts in St. Augustine helped to get the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed. I think that um, acid in the pool incident really did the trick because they were filibusting and everything in Washington. And um, that picture went all over the world. And people was complaining about it and they thought it was the worst thing they had ever seen. Barbara Vickers says that many individuals participated in St. Augustine's civil rights demonstrations and that they all deserve recognition. Well, like Hammond Odom that night that we were down here, uh, he was blooded. At, uh, one of the rocks hit him in the nose, and um, if you saw him on TV, you was just wondering could he still breathe. And um, Mackie, did nobody know anything about it? Mackie was, I mean, completely blooded. I guess two or three bricks must have hit him at the same time. And uh, these people had to be taken to the hospital, and they refused to wait on them. And um, some of them, they had to go to Jacksonville. If it wasn't real serious, they just would doctor on themselves. But um, there was one lady with me, Sydney Harris, and she was about, I was 30, and she must have was about 90. And every night, she was there. She said she had to be a part of this. It was going to make a difference. She wanted to be there to help make a difference. And that's how these people felt, because when Andy Young came, he came to, uh, to disband our struggle here. And uh, Jose Williams said, you can't do that. These people are ready. They're tired. They want to see freedom. So he marched with us that night, and um, we continued. Barbara Vickers is thrilled with Brian Owen's work. She led the effort to have the St. Augustine Foot Soldiers Memorial created. Because I was there with those people. They lost their jobs, they had to leave town, and uh, they had babies to feed, and all the attention was going for the people of name. And those people left. And we were here by ourselves to struggle and try to carry on. And I said that nobody know anything about how they suffered, and they suffered. And I just said I would love to see a monument of something to represent those people. And that, like I said, it was college students, they were white, they were black, they were young, they were old, and um, nobody cared about them. And it just kept on my mind, I just couldn't get them out of my mind. I 
think about people that uh, moved away, and some of them have never been back to St. Augustine. They refused to come back to St. Augustine. The St. Augustine foot soldiers mobilized their efforts when African Americans were excluded from plans for the city's 400th anniversary. As the city's 450th anniversary approaches, Barbara Vickers says that the foot soldiers will be there too. Yes, we will. We will be there to play our role this time. Yeah, we were left out last time, but not this time. We will be there. Barbara Vickers is president of the St. Augustine Foot Soldiers Memorial Project. Brian R. Owens created the memorial sculpture. It is on permanent display in St. Augustine's downtown plaza, right next to the former slave market. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, find great books on Florida history and culture, and check out our educational resources. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Spanish colonial historian Susan Parker. In 1603, seven African slaves ran away from St. Augustine. This is one of the earliest recorded slave escapes they headed south to the Soruque Indians in the area of Canaveral National Seashore. The governor of Spanish Florida wanted the escapees returned to St. Augustine. He was worried about more than just the loss of laborers. The governor feared that the escapees would share their knowledge of St. Augustine and its defenses with those who wanted to attack the town. Florida Indian groups might wish to launch a raid. English or French ships that came ashore might offer cloth or tools to the Indians in exchange for intelligence brought by the blacks from the Spanish town. Eventually, five of the seven escapees were returned to St. Augustine. The other two went even farther south, to the Ais in the area of Vero Beach, and married into the family of the chief of the Ais. It is interesting that these blacks were escaping from St. Augustine many years before other slaves began to escape to St. Augustine. Spanish colonial historian Susan Parker. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. The cattle industry has been an integral part of Florida history and culture for centuries. Rodeos held frequently around the state are a contemporary expression of that proud tradition. Janie Gould talks with a former rodeo clown. At the Okeechobee Livestock Market the other day, Rocky Powell was taking a break from the buying scene around the auction ring to have lunch at the busy diner a few steps away. Not surprisingly, hamburgers are a specialty. Powell is a cowboy and a retired rodeo clown. The rider clowns got to keep the bull's attention when the rider get bucked off, keep the rider from getting hooked and stuff. I slap the bull in the face or whatever, make him chase me, and he see me and run after me inside the rider. Did a bull ever catch you, run over you? 
Yes, ma'am. I've been hooked underneath my right eye up in Ringo, Georgia back in 1974. Mud and stuff, and they put 13 stitches. They sewed it up that night, and next day I came back to the rodeo with a patch over my eye and kept doing my job. I love keeping people safe. So just getting hooked under the right eye didn't stop you at all? No, ma'am. I've been hooked underneath the neck before, and I've been hooked in my right leg. When you say you've been hooked, that means you've been gouged by a bull's horn, right? Yes, ma'am. Matter of fact, it stuck in my right leg, and uh took my britches inside me and rip it out. I laid in the hospital for a week or two. That was another month or so. I was back clowning rodeos again. Your friends here at the Okeechobee Livestock Market tell me that your nickname is Hard Rock. Yes, ma'am. They always call me Hard Rock because if you dare me do something or double dare me or whatever, I would do it because I wasn't scared of nothing. A lot of people were killed or crippled, but I would get up, shake my head and go on. Because rodeos are pretty dangerous, aren't they? Yes, ma'am, they're very dangerous. Nowadays, they got vests and helmets and everything else, but in my days, we didn't do that. You just yourself, and you better be tough. So you never rode with a helmet, right? No, ma'am. I have rode with a cat's on my left leg before and stuff. Matter of fact, back in about 73 or so, I cut back of my cat's out, ma'am, his spur, and I won the bull ride. The rodeo circuit has kind of changed in Florida. There just aren't as many as there used to be. Well, the trouble is, I don't know, this younger generation, they just not as tough or whatever you want to call it. They just found a better, easier life to do. And the rodeo life is not easy because you got to go hard, you got to hit a bunch of them, and you don't win all the time. Was it a pretty good living for you at the time? Yes, ma'am. Back in the 70s and stuff, I made three, four, five hundred dollars a weekend, and that was a lot of money. You're uh, in the cow business, sort of now. You're a cowboy, Rocky? Yes, ma'am. I still day work and stuff, and I own a few cows of my own. Not a bunch, but not to keep me going. It keep me from getting in trouble. I used to drink, but I quit drinking in 84 because I was too wild and crazy. <laughs> but now I work cattle and take care of my own little herd and and come around and talk to all the other uh, ranchers and cowboys around. Do you ever go to rodeos as a spectator? Well, I used to go there and watch them, but I was standing by the fence, and my problem is somebody get in trouble, I would jump over the fence and help them. I was going to hurt myself, so if I do go, I sit way up in the top stands for I can't jump over the fence no more. So you're not tempted to jump back into the ring? Rocky Powell is a retired rodeo clown who lives in Okeechobee. Cheney Gould prepared that report. But where are the clowns? There ought to be clowns. Well, maybe. This is Florida Frontiers. Often referred to as the mother of the Everglades, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas spent the latter part of her long life defending Florida's natural resources. Bill Dudley talks to the author of the first comprehensive biography of a woman who became one of America's environmental icons. We have all these natural beauties and resources 
and our great problem is to keep them as they are in spite of the tremendous increase of population of people who don't necessarily understand the nature of Florida. She was an environmental activist from age 79 until her last news conference in her front yard when she was 103. University of Florida historian Jack Davis. Shortly after Douglas's death in 1998, Davis began what would prove to be a monumental task. In his new book, An Everglades Providence, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and the American Environmental Century, well over 700 pages were needed to encompass her life and times. First of all, she lived 108 years. <laughs> so that's a lot of territory to cover. Uh, that's two lifetimes in, in some cases. And her life remarkably paralleled the busiest years of human interaction with, with the Everglades. So there was that story to tell as well. Marjorie Stoneman was born in Minneapolis in 1890, raised by grandparents in New England. Davis's research has uncovered new details on her short-lived marriage to Kenneth Douglas and her World War I experiences in the Red Cross, mentioned only in a series of short stories she wrote for the Saturday Evening Post. Still, for such an important historical figure, materials on Douglas's early life are remarkably scarce. She didn't leave a great storehouse of personal letters, which I found interesting because most writers compose thousands of letters over their lifetime, and they, and they save them. There were very few. Even as a teenager, Marjorie had wanted to be a writer. She came to Florida in 1915 to work for her father at the newspaper he had co-founded, what would become the Miami Herald. In 1926, she moved into the cottage in Coconut Grove, where she would spend the rest of her life. In the 1940s, she was hired to write a book on the Miami River. I said, oh, you can't do a book about the Miami River. It's not long enough. But... I didn't want to refuse the idea, so I said, but if it's part of a system of rivers, it might be even, you know, the Everglades. And they said, okay, go ahead and write a book about the Everglades. Although her 1947 bestseller, The Everglades, River of Grass, has become one of the most important environmental books ever written, Douglas was not an environmentalist when she published the book. She'd been active all her life, first in women's suffrage, later in civil rights. But after the success of River of Grass, she continued writing novels and nonfiction books. Until 1969, when Washington-based environmental consultant Joe Browder, then a regional director for the National Audubon Society, persuaded the 79-year-old Marjorie to join the fight to stop construction of a giant airport in the heart of what is now the Big Cypress Preserve. Because Marjorie had written the book and was lionized as an artist and an author and a woman who was seen as a truth speaker. She was such an ethical force that the political process wasn't used to dealing with people with that kind of reputation, integrity, and, and fierceness. And she really did make a difference. After stopping the Miami Jetport, her group, the Friends of the Everglades, went on to lobby for restoration of the Kissimmee River and other causes, earning Douglas a reputation for speaking out as well as the enmity of the sugarcane industry, the Army Corps of Engineers, and many others in state and local agencies. She was impatient with officials who betrayed their duty, no doubt about that. She had her targets, but that wasn't her personality, that was her criticism of people who had a broad obligations but were responding to narrow interests. She was a implacable humanitarian, a lifelong learner, 
incredibly smart woman with a broad range of knowledge and somebody with a very keen sense of humor, very witty. People loved her sense of humor. I believe the key to her longevity was she kept her mind active as long as she possibly could. She read books and then she listened to audio books until the end of her life. She continued to write until she went blind, and then she would dictate to her secretary. She kept three secretaries busy, even past age 100. Historian Jack Davis. His book is An Everglades Providence, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and the American Environmental Century, published by University of Georgia Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, heard exclusively on the best public radio stations in Florida and on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.